going to be looking at parts of chapters 8, 9, and 10. And think about the theme of living on the edge with indifference. Indifference. I pastored in the Cincinnati area in the 1970s, and it was during that time that the big red machine was so effective in wiping out ball teams from across the country, including some in this area. Something happened to the big red machine along the way somewhere. The wheel sort of came off, and it got dismantled. But I'll tell you back in those days to go to that ballpark and watch those guys play to see Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and those other guys play was something. It, it's just one of those things that you had to be there to really appreciate. Have you ever noticed that about life, that it's very difficult to express to someone else when you have, uh, what you have experienced when it's been very, very meaningful and touching to your emotions? For example, you uh, go to Mississippi or to the New Orleans area right now. We had a couple of young folks in our church who've done that. And when I saw them last week after coming back from their two-week tour there, it was almost as though they had uh, traumatic stress syndrome on their faces. Uh, next Sunday, in fact, we're going to be in conversation with them during this service as they try to share with us what they saw and what they experienced there. But I know what they're going to say. You just have to see it yourself to believe it. What we're looking at today in Nehemiah is one of those occasions. It was October the 2nd, 445 B.C., the great project to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem was completed. In only 52 days, the workers were able to rebuild the wall under the leadership of Nehemiah and under the good hand of God, which was upon them. The workers on this day put the final stone into place. That last gate was put into its setting. And so once more, the city of Jerusalem was protected from its enemies. It was an awesome day. You just had to have been there. The pagans were watching. And they were demoralized and fearful because of what they saw happen. They knew that this could only be done with God's help and that God was now with His people. After they had finished that work, the workers settled back into their own villages. But something was wrong. The wall was done, but somehow the people were unsettled in their spirit. A great work had been accomplished, but there was an emptiness that was within them. They had done God's work. And now God was at work in them, preparing them spiritually for the repair of their spiritual relationship with Him. Less than a week later, on October the 8th, which was New Year's Day, actually, for the civil calendar of that, that nation, there was a large congregation that gathered again within the walls of the city. We read about it at the beginning of chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before 
the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the body, the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So that means children were there too. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. What seems apparent here is that they had done this work for God, and now they began to realize in their hearts that they needed a different kind of work. God had helped them to rebuild the physical walls of the city, but they needed a work done in their hearts, in their relationship with God. Have you ever noticed that things naturally dissipate or decay or grow more random or they lose their energy? Uh, yes, I know. I feel that way too as I get older. I lose my energy, don't you? But take a tea kettle. It boils the water in there as long as the heat is on, but turn the heat off, what happens? Well, it gradually cools down. Or you, uh, you get yourself lined up there and you're going to take a shot at this little white ball that's down in that little piece of wood on the ground before you, and you take that mighty swing of yours and that ball lofts up in the air and it drops about 10 feet in front of you. <laughs> And then it rolls another 15 feet downhill, but it stops. Why is this? Well, it's just the, the, one of the laws of physics. It's the law of the world in which we live. Things tend to dissipate. Do you know that you and I can be busy doing work for God? but still be far from God in our hearts and in need of spiritual renewal. That had happened to God's people in that day, and it still happens to God's people today. You see, it's not enough for us to be busy, involved in God's purposes, even good purposes. We need something more than that. We need and were made to know God personally. Life, even Christian service and life in the church, becomes very dry and unsatisfying apart from a growing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that doesn't just happen. Just as you have to intentionally turn the water on and keep it on under that tea kettle, you have to be intentional about your growth and your relationship with Jesus Christ. The Jews help us understand the spiritual journey that's involved in this. And we want to track along with them here in this text in Nehemiah. They give us, first of all, a pathway to spiritual renewal. 
a pathway to spiritual renewal. Step number one is to awaken to reality. To awaken to reality. Now this is really assumed in our text. It's not specifically stated, but what we see happen here is that the hearts of God's people began to be aware that they had a need. You know, our hearts too easily become spiritually cool and they drift away from the intimate relationship with Christ that we know at any given point. Some of us about a year and a half ago when the Life Action team was here made significant commitments and decisions in our lives. But unless we have tended after those commitments, in a year and a half they cool and our hearts cool. Jesus spoke to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And he said to them, I know your deeds. But he says, you do not realize what your true heart condition is. You see, it's possible to have all kinds of deeds in our lives, doing even good things, things for God and for our hearts to be lukewarm. These Jews had achieved a great success in the rebuilding of the wall of the city, but they knew that something was missing inside, and this morning maybe you feel that way too. A writer named Pam Hogwide shares her own experience in an article from the internet. She says, at my home group, I listened recently as one by one each person told about his or her dissatisfaction with church, or rather doing church. Without any prompting from our leader, this spontaneous time of sharing brought out into the open thoughts of discontentment in the body of Christ. One person said, I've been feeling really empty at church lately. What is it? Her question floated around the room, provoking others to attempt to identify what it was. Someone wondered if it was the structure of the Sunday service. We go to church, we sit in a pew, and we listen to a message, and then go home. Someone else thought it was all about the programs that the church had become so good at putting together. I don't want programs, she said. I want hospitality. The discussion we had at my home group was not a gripe session about the particular church we attend. She says, we, like many others, were giving voice to the disillusionment we find ourselves in as the collective body of Christ. This is like an awakening of sorts, of people who are rousing themselves up out of the pews all over the country and are declaring, I can't play church anymore. There's a growing awareness, she says, that church is not about a place or a building. The perception of many believers I've talked with is that, the Ameri that American Christians have mastered going to church rather than being the church. One blog I sometimes check out, she says, is hosted by a guy who grew up in a very large church. He watched his church begin operating more like a business than a church. He says, it seems that many of them churches 
are pushing the American dream over the love of Jesus. Maybe there's something like that going on in your heart this morning. An awakening of sorts. My friend, whenever that happens, believe me, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Because those kinds of thoughts don't come from ourselves. We're prone to think the other way. Anytime there is a stirring in our hearts, as there was here in the day of Ezra, Nehemiah, it is the work of the Spirit of God unsettling us, preparing us for something. Step number two, first awaken to reality. Do you know what reality is in your life? Where is your heart with God? Have you listened to your own heart lately? Or is your life so noisy and so busy that you really haven't had time? And yet somehow, in the din of all of that, God is at work and you sense being unsettled. The second step after that is to listen to God. As you see here, Ezra begins to read the book. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It says the Levites then, a list number of them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read, which may signify that there were interpreters involved because people spoke different languages. And so they were listening to God. At the end of uh, verse 9, it says, For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They were listening to God. I'm afraid that too often our lives are busy. And therefore our hearts grow dull to the voice of God and it's lost. And we don't hear him speaking to us as he once did. What must we do? It is absolutely vital, child of God, for, for you to pull away from all of the stuff that is now filling your heart and filling your mind and to be intentional and to give God your undivided attention. You must listen to God. You must get into the Word of God and open your heart and say, Oh God, speak to me. And He will. There's first this awakening, this sense of unsettlement that comes to your mind, and then you intentionally listen to God. And the third step of spiritual renewal is repent of wrong. With the hearing of God's Word here, you see weeping began. As they heard the word of God, they became aware of their sin. There was conviction of wrongdoing in their hearts. 
they were sorry and they turned from their sin. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that in the midst of the weeping, the priests stopped it. They stepped into the situation. They said, this is not the time to weep. We are gathered here for the Feast of Tabernacles. You should not be weeping. You should be joyful. And we're going to have a party. And so they did. They stopped the weeping for that moment. And they observed this feast for several days. But then, on October the 20th, 445 B.C., they again gathered, this time for an official assembly to confess their sins before God. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. On the 24th day of the same month, they gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. These were symbols of their repentance. And what we have in the, the most part of chapter 9 is a, a record of this prayer that is prayed, confessing their sins to God. It is one of three great prayers of confession in the Bible. I wish we had time to go through it this morning, but they recount the sins of the nation through its history and the hard times that had come upon them as a people with their captivity and the destruction of their city, which they had now begun to rebuild. And in verse 33, they sort of sum it up this way, in all that has happened to us, God, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. They repent of the wrong. But they don't stop with the repentance. There's a fourth step that we see in chapter 10. The fourth step to spiritual renewal is to reorder your life, to conform to what pleases God. In chapter 10, we have the record of some 80 individuals who set their name to a document. It is sealed with the seal of the nation. And what this document basically is, is an agreement with God. It is drawn up and signed. The leaders commit themselves, the people commit themselves to live differently. They say, we're going to change our godless ways. We're going to restructure our lives, pleasing to God. We're going to stop intermarrying with pagans. We're going to stop neglecting the Sabbath day. We're going to bring the contributions that God has commanded to the house of the Lord. And we will not neglect, they say, the house of our God. A reordering of the life according to God's priorities. My friend, those are the steps to spiritual renewal. It begins with an awakening of the conscience and then to a new listening to God in our hearts that results in conviction that comes to us and God begins to expose what the issues are that have concerned to Him in our lives. And then we repent of those things and we reorder our lives to what God wants and that, that brings spiritual renewal. Do you need spiritual renewal this morning? When spiritual renewal comes, it's evident. 
It's not something that you just talk about. It's something that makes change. There, there are certain positive replacements that take place in the life. Let's think about the proof of spiritual renewal for a moment. First of all, misery is replaced by joy. In this great prayer, the people speak of the distress that they feel, the distress that has come upon them because of their sin and their rebellion against God. But we see that distress replaced by joy. In fact, it says great joy. There was a joy as they were able to experience the forgiveness of God in their lives. No longer were they weighed down by their sins. No longer were their hearts now convicted, but they were filled with joy and release and fellowship with God. That's what happens when the heart is awakened in spiritual renewal. Misery is replaced by joy. Secondly, indifference is replaced by enthusiasm. Indifference is replaced by enthusiasm. It had been years and years since any public reading of God's Word. And remember, in those days, they didn't have personal Bibles like you and I are privileged to have. The law of God was, was kept in scrolls. And to hear the law of God, the scrolls had to be opened by a priest and read. It had been years since this had happened. There was no concern in their lives for Sabbath observance. They had great apathy about the work of God in the temple. There was indifference in the hearts of the people of God. But when spiritual renewal came, there was enthusiasm. There was passion. It chases away indifference. Renewal brings passion for God, passion for His Word, passion for pleasing God, passion for doing the work of God. Indifference is replaced by enthusiasm when spiritual renewal is real. There's a third proof of spiritual renewal. Compromise is replaced by consecration. Compromise with pagans was common among them. They had lost their unique identity as the people of God. They had conformed to the ways and the activity of the godless who lived around them. They lived like the pagans. They conducted themselves as part of that pagan culture. But when their hearts were renewed, when they were repentant of their sin, and when they had uh, been forgiven, when their hearts were alive with fresh power from God, what happened? Their lives were cleaned up. They consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart from the worldly pagans. They said, we're going to order our lives in a holy manner. We're going to, to see ourselves for who God has called us to be. We're going to live that out in our world, and who cares what the pagans think about it? Because this is who I am as one of the people of God. And so they set themselves apart to holy living. That's what spiritual renewal brings. Consecration replaces compromise in the life. And then ignorance is replaced by insight. Insight. 
The people of God were blinded by their sins. They were ignorant of what God had called them to be about. You know, sin does that. Sin puts blinders on. Sin deceives. I talked recently with a wife whose, whose husband has gotten involved in an affair. This is not related to our church. It's in a different context. Married over 30 years, faithful in the church for those years, and suddenly an about face. And the husband now is thinking he's doing the will of God by leaving his wife and divorcing her and marrying some younger lady. Talk about the deception of sin. Sin makes us stupid. Sin causes us to act crazy. Sin causes us to think like we thought we would, would never do. It, 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 sin changes us. But when spiritual renewal happens, that ignorance is replaced by insight and suddenly we see. Here the people of God saw the importance of keeping the feast of booths or tabernacles. And they obeyed God without hesitation. They saw their sin. And when you read this prayer, you see how they go back to the beginning of their nation and they perceive the terrible pattern in the history of their nation and the, the times when their people turned away from God again and again and again. And yet, they also saw down through that long history of hundreds of years the faithfulness of God. God gave them insight. Insight replaces ignorance. And then finally, old patterns are replaced by new patterns. They had gotten into some bad habits, allowing their daughters to intermarry with pagans. The habit of neglecting the Sabbath, the Lord's day. The habit of forsaking their support for the temple of God. And so because of what God was doing in their hearts, they said, we need some new patterns. And so they put new patterns in place. They made new commitments. They said, we're leaving behind our indifference and our apathy toward God and his work. We're going to set priorities that are pleasing to God. And I wish we had time to go through and, and just see all of them in their commitment in chapter 10, but we don't. But inevitably, when God is stirring the heart and spiritual renewal begins to take place, one of the fruits of that is that old patterns are replaced by new patterns. Spiritual renewal brings about change, life change. You say, well, how do I know if I need revival? How do I know if I need spiritual renewal? The answer is simply do a heart check. That's what it boils down to. The psalmist said, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. We can ask ourselves questions like, do I have a worshiping heart? Am I spending time sitting at the feet of Jesus every day, listening to his word, worshiping him? Does Jesus occupy the center of my thoughts throughout the day? 
Do I freely express my love to Jesus and my thanks to him? Do I have a worshiping heart? Do I have a pure heart? Do I love righteousness and hate evil? Am I quick to agree with God when I'm convicted about my sin? Or do I try to excuse myself? Do I guard my heart against ungodly influences and habits? Can I honestly say that there's no unconfessed sin between my soul and the Savior? Is my conscience perfectly clear toward all others? Do I have a pure heart? Do I have a broken and contrite heart? Do I grieve over my sin and how that sin affects God? Not how it affects me and makes me feel bad, but how that sin affects God. Am I aware of the needs of others even more so than my own needs? Do I have a broken and a contrite heart? Do I have a surrendered heart? Have I ever consciously surrendered my entire life to Jesus as Lord? Am I willing to go anywhere, do anything, be anything that he asks of me? Do I have a surrendered heart? And then do I have a forgiving heart? Is my heart free from bitterness and anger toward all who have wronged me? Have I truly forgiven those who've hurt me? Am I carrying someone else's grievance against another person? Have I gone, have I done rather all I can to reconcile with those individuals with whom I've had conflict in the past? Do I have a forgiving heart? And then do I have a praying heart? Do I pray regularly, specifically, earnestly? Do I pray with other believers for God's will in our lives? for God's will in our church, in our world? Do I, do I pray for the lost in my world of influence? Do I have a praying heart? And then, do I have a caring, burdened heart? Do I really care about those who are lost and going to hell? Do I grieve over the effects of sin in our world? Do I allow my heart to feel the burden of the heart of God for others? Do I have a desire for God that his kingdom might be advanced throughout the world? Those are the kind of questions I need to ask myself in a heart check. Do I need revival? Tim Bascom, writing in his book, The Comfort Trap, says, We're too comfortable to be spiritual. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? We're too comfortable to be spiritual. We think we will be able to pursue God better without danger or hardship. And yet it works in just the opposite way. Nothing is more difficult than to grow spiritually when comfortable. That's why the believer Alexander Solzhenitsyn's reaction to his exile in the Soviet labor camp was to bless it. Do you remember that? He continues, because it was there that Solzhenitsyn discovered that the meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. We want to be comfortable 
What is the condition of your heart? Are you busy? But barren and indifferent to spiritual things? Perhaps the most dangerous weapon, the most dangerous spiritual weapon against your soul is not hatred. It's not anger. It's not lust. It's apathy. Apathy. I'm eager to see the film on Narnia coming out in a few weeks. Perhaps you are as well. C.S. Lewis's great work is going to be on film, and from everything that we've heard, it's going to be a magnificent experience to watch it. I encourage you to go. I encourage you to take your friends to go see it. C.S. Lewis made a powerful statement, and with this I'm going to close. He said, Christianity, if false, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, isn't that where we tend to live making Jesus moderately important in our lives. And if that's the case, then we do need spiritual renewal. And we need to go down that pathway that these Jews went down and have our hearts awakened, convicted, repentant. We need to weep for our sin then experience the change in our lives as we reorder ourselves according to God's priorities. God help each of us to come to that place in our lives today where our hearts are passionate about Jesus. We say as a church that we exist to develop passionate followers of Jesus Christ not moderate followers, passionate followers. That's who we say we are. God help us to be that. Amen? And now, Father, if we're listening to your word today, the Holy Spirit has spoken, and you know exactly what we need to hear you have been stirring our hearts, preparing us. You have been doing a work. and You've brought us to the edge of the path to spiritual renewal. And I pray that each of us will be willing to walk on that path. And may we weep and repent of lukewarmness, indifference and apathy of making you moderately important in our lives may we see the terrible sin that is come back to you and set our lives right with our heads bowed and our eyes closed what does that mean to you 
What do you want to say to God this morning? Right where you are, will you talk to him in the quietness of this moment? Maybe you don't know where to begin, but you can, can say to him, I see my need. My eyes are opened. Lead me, Lord. Father, we acknowledge to you that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit continually at work in our lives that we do not drift into apathy and indifference. So easily do we find ourselves moving in that direction with the current of our world. I pray today that you will reclaim us. I pray that just as you worked in the hearts of those people of God in that ancient day, so you will work in Los Gatos Christian Church in my heart and the heart of every person that hears this message. That we might see the reality, be awakened to what we are, and get on the pathway to renewal and revival. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.